Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. Today we're listening to an interview I recorded a few weeks ago with Jameson Lop. It took a while to release it due to some circumstances, and I'm glad I did because a lot has happened since then, and it's kind of changed my perspective on speaking with him. When I spoke to Jameson, I have to admit that I was almost surprised to discover how unmaximalist he was in terms of Bitcoin culture. He's really, in my opinion, a technologist first, and he's stuck with Bitcoin, not because of any sort of religious promise or overwhelming belief, but rather on the merits of its technological abilities for advancing human freedom. That's, in retrospect, incredibly positive and cool. I think that Lop has a nuanced view of blockchain technology, and maybe some points that he makes are not immediately obvious if you're at the beginning of your journey, but Listening to him at this point, I'm very sympathetic to his views on keeping an open mind and being a lifelong learner, as well as some of his more practical thoughts about professional certifications surrounding Bitcoin and the stages of multi-sig security. I hope that you find this interview both intellectually interesting and also practically useful. Today, I am speaking with a cypherpunk legend, Jameson Lop. Jameson is an early Bitcoiner, a technical guy, and he has produced a massive body of articles on Bitcoin technology, adoption, security practices. His website, lop.net, is an incredible resource for new and old Bitcoiners. I've used it a lot myself. He also has musings on privacy, on security, and a whole host of other ancillary topics that are of interest to Bitcoiners. Before we begin our conversation, Jameson, is there anything else you'd like to talk about your your journey from a technologist to a Bitcoiner to a old Bitcoiner? Sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, it's... <laughs> It's actually something where I see a number of parallels with other things I've been interested in over the years, uh, sort of uh, being a technologist and being on the forefront of new things that are coming out. It's funny how quickly you can become an OG in technology if you are on the bleeding edge. And so I've done that before with uh, with web app, uh, you know, software as a service development. I've done it before with uh, big data back in the day about like 13, 14 years ago. Ago. And I've, I've seen these communities build up around technologies and been able to you know, be a part of early adoption. And, and you never know, you know how the, the technology and the ecosystem around it is, is going to evolve. But what I found is, you know, as long as you're a lifelong learner and you keep pushing yourself and pushing the boundaries of whatever it is that you're interested in, it's actually very easy to become an expert or be considered an expert in something after only a few years. Of, of being in it if you get in early and you're basically so far ahead of the curve that everyone else uh, starts looking to you for answers. So this is mostly, I think, an aberration for me because I've stuck with Bitcoin for 10 years, whereas most other technologies, you maybe spend three years, five years, whatever, and then something new and shiny comes along and you know, perhaps that's something interesting to talk about as well, because there's certainly many other crypto and decentralized technologies that have come along. And yet, while I've tried to learn a little bit about them, I've never felt that any of them were quite so compelling that I would want to abandon my journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. 
That's really interesting because I would say that people who onboarded in this cycle, the the 2020 to 2022 cycle, or even the earlier 2017 to 2018 cycle, sorry to generalize, but I feel like there is a Bitcoin first, Bitcoin maximalist identity that almost precludes looking at other projects too closely. But it sounds like after 10 years in Bitcoin, you have looked at other projects and evaluated them and found Bitcoin to be something that's enduring and interesting into the future. Can you comment on that perhaps difference in perspective towards other projects? You know, I think that you shouldn't necessarily turn yourself off from learning about other projects that are happening. Um, It's the the maximalist thing is definitely something that I I think can trigger a lot of people. and, And in fact, gets me a lot of flack as well, because I am a technologist. I am interested I would say in any technology that helps empower people. And so, you know, cryptographic based technologies are, I think, one very important way that we can do that today because we're really giving this um, defensive asymmetry power to individuals to, to really push back against larger centralized entities that often can manipulate uh, various systems that they control at their whim, at the you know, detriment to individual users of the systems. And so I do experiment and play around with and try to learn about some of these new crypto-based technologies. And and I do find some of them interesting, but on the other hand, I do find a lot of them are very scammy, um, though that's a trigger word as well. Uh, They're not... They're not all necessarily scammy in the sense that there's like one actor or one entity that's trying to rip people off. Some of them are scammy, I think, more from a sense of the the people behind the projects are kind of scamming themselves. They're uh, a bit delusional in what they think they're going to be able to accomplish. But, you know, it gets into a really gray area that can make a lot of people very angry and often is, is a result of me getting raked over the coals, usually a couple times a year because I talk about some other technology that I think is interesting. And then due to the financialization of this space, a lot of people get triggered and think that I'm um, saying that a certain technology is an investment that I am recommending, which I certainly never do. You have a technological perspective and background that allows you to evaluate different projects and technologies. And I suspect that a lot of Bitcoin maximalists do not. And so I I wonder if Bitcoin maximalism is sort of a shorthand for just avoiding getting scammed, because if you throw darts at a wall full of cryptocurrency projects, you're only going to hit scams or things that don't work out. Obviously, scam is a subjective term. Perhaps maximalism and toxic maximalism has just become a kind of shorthand immune response to the rampant financial speculation and scamminess of the cryptocurrency space in general? Yeah, I I think that a lot of the quote-unquote toxic Bitcoin maximalists are not very technical, leaning more heavily perhaps on economic or kind of like mimetic aspects of the space and that maximalism makes sense from an investment standpoint if you're really looking for more conservative type of investments where bitcoin is probably the most conservative crypto investment because it's 
by far the largest, the most distributed, the oldest, and it has a number of properties that very few other crypto systems have, and arguably some properties that none of them will probably ever be able to achieve. We're kind of talking about like how do we how do we talk to newbies about approaching this space? Then maximalism is a kind of easy way to wave your hands and say, you know, don't spend your time trying to evaluate these other systems if you're not really savvy and, and can understand all of the different aspects. But also I would say that even despite my own technical expertise, uh, that has not translated into understanding these other systems as investments. And that's because, um, you know, a lot, I would say, you know, this is just kind of pulling a number out of thin air, but, you know, probably 80, 90 plus percent of the value of a lot of these crypto token systems are based on speculation as opposed to utility. And there is no level, I think, of technical expertise or understanding that will help you be able to predict uh, what the rest of the world will see in the value of a system. And so, you know, for example, I didn't get in on the Ethereum ICO back in the day. I, I looked at it. I read all the terms and conditions. And actually, when I read through the terms and conditions, I saw that they said that they did not even, they were not even promising or guaranteeing that they were ever going to deliver any software whatsoever. Now, you know, in hindsight, I know that was all just like legalese and them covering themselves. And there was plenty of other reasons from a technical perspective why I thought it was a poorly designed system. But that didn't prevent it from getting a, a huge level of, of adoption. And had I invested in it early, I would have done quite well. But there are, you know, there's multiple ways to look at these different systems. And if you're doing it from an investment standpoint, it's not necessarily going to be from the same rigorous, like technical standpoint that I would evaluate systems because I'm really, I'm more looking at them from like a, a security and robustness perspective. That's really interesting. And it kind of reminds me of how there's this myth of early Bitcoiners who are these sort of closet OG, they did very well in Bitcoin kind of thing. And I'm, you know, that, that exists to a certain extent. But when we do Bitcoin meetups in the Pacific Northwest, where I'm from, actually, most early Bitcoiners are really wrecked in the sense that they were so close to all of these speculations, but then they didn't invest in it because they're not financial professionals. They're early adopters or people who are really interested in privacy technologies or, or other. Uh, they have some other perspective. And so it's really interesting to hear you talk about how understanding the technical details of a system are completely different from understanding the financial implications and the speculative implications of the system. I think you wrote an article called Nobody Understands Bitcoin. This seems to play into that, perhaps. Absolutely. If you talk to any of the, the real OGs from like the first few years of Bitcoin, I mean, there's there's plenty of well-known stories, of course, like the pizza story with Laszlo. And uh, I think he ended up spending 30 or 40,000 Bitcoins for uh, you know half a dozen pizzas over the course of a few months. And and it's because, you know, like I said earlier, there's there's many ways to look at Bitcoin. And if, for example, you're only looking at it as a way to uh, buy uh, small items uh, from people as a sort of like retail payment type of thing, then you're probably not going to want to uh, scoop up a ton of it as a speculative investment. And um, I mean, I've, I've heard countless stories of people who've said, who've told me things basically to the extent of something like I've snorted, you know, $50 million worth of 
Bitcoin you know, from Silk Road back in the day. A ton of stories like that because that was one of the main use cases back then. And I think the only people who became you know, super independently wealthy were the small subset of people who were looking at it as the like digital gold store of value type of use case. And they were the ones who avoided spending it and avoided the huge temptation to trade it as the markets were being really volatile. You know, I would also suspect that the majority of people who were actively trading their Bitcoin probably ended up with far less than they started out with. That definitely tracks from stories I've heard. Now, we're getting into a conversation about different perspectives on Bitcoin. And I think you might be familiar with Pete Rizzo's article where he kind of simplifies Bitcoiners into three categories, monetary maximalists, platform maximalists, and network maximalists. I'm wondering if you can talk about your perspective on these flavors of Bitcoin maximalism and which of those perspectives on Bitcoin is closest to your own. I'm not sure if I'm the first one who said it, but I actually wrote a blog post three or four years ago. It was actually in response to the INX token drama that happened because I'm an advisor with the INX exchange and they uh, spent several years creating and eventually releasing a uh, regulatory compliant security token. And you know that was one of you know, several different events over the years that has triggered a lot of people and, and made them uh, claim that like I'm not a Bitcoiner or, or I'm not maximalist enough or whatever. And one of my kind of conclusions in that article where I was talking about the token and its dynamics and, and why it was not like your standard like 2017 ICO token was that, you know, I believe that there will be innumerable crypto tokens out there and they will have many different uses. And I don't believe that they all necessarily compete with Bitcoin. There were certainly people who said, well, you know, you could have done this token on the liquid network or on RSK or, or whatever. And, you know, there were reasons why that didn't happen, but they theoretically could happen. And I, I don't think that it would really make a difference either way which technological platform a regulated security token exists on because ultimately a security token has a single point of failure, which is the the company that is issuing it. So there are many different tokens. There, there are going to be more than I think anyone can ever imagine. Some of them will hopefully have unique utility. Obviously, a lot of them, I think, are just going to be complete scams because this is the nature of free market where anyone can create anything they want and can basically hype it and market it. And the scammy ones may do well for a little while, but over the long run, value is only going to stay in the systems that, that truly provide long-term value. So coming back around to maximalism, like one of my other beliefs of why maximalism is sensible is because I've you know, I've worked for a company that went from being uh, Bitcoin only to uh, supporting pretty much every token under the sun. And I saw that there is friction in the sense that there's overhead for how many different assets that you as an individual are managing, or even you as a, as a company uh, and the infrastructure that I was having to manage. And I don't think that the average person wants to own or keep track of more than maybe a dozen assets. So while there will be tens or hundreds of thousands or millions of different crypto tokens out there, there's going to be a very long tail. And I think the vast majority 
majority of people are only going to have a handful of them, or they may, the vast majority may only have Bitcoin. It sounds like your experience is that we're in a multi-chain, multi-coin world, just probably because of the incentives of creating new assets and live with it. The idea that Bitcoin necessarily consumes or outcompetes all other crypto projects to the point where they don't exist is probably a philosophical point, not a practical one. Yeah, because there's a reason why a lot of these systems are more centralized. There's always pros and cons and, and, and trade-offs. And something, you know, for example, like a, a Solana, which is meant to supposedly be highly scalable, it's also run by a a fairly small network of administrators that it's small enough that they can essentially coordinate with each other. And that's certainly helpful when things go wrong. And, and a lot of things do seem to go wrong with that system. But you know, the trade-off is that you don't have some of the same guarantees and robustness. And I would say, you know, things like um, nation state resistance uh, when you can point to a small group of people that is effectively controlling a whole network. Now, you wrote an article talking about Bitcoin as a trust anchor. And I've personally experienced this because one thing I did was to use Peter Todd's open timestamp projects to anchor a novel I'm writing or an early draft into the Bitcoin blockchain. And this is actually a way of establishing copyright, because in the past, writers would take an early draft and mail it to themselves and then never open that envelope just in case there was ever a copyright dispute, because then they could go to court and they could show this sealed envelope with a, a mailing stamp date on it and this established time and time of creation of a manuscript. Can you talk about Bitcoin as a trust anchor and using Bitcoin's immutability to anchor things in time? It all comes down to using cryptography as magic. Uh, the cool thing about open timestamps is it has this roll-up mechanism, uh, which is what I think a lot of, of systems that anchor into Bitcoin would essentially be like, where unlike uh, some other systems, you know, your, like your EVM-based systems where people tend to put like all the data and in all of the, um, I should say, state transitions into the blockchain itself, that is not as scalable. It, you know, it, it means that you know everyone who wants to validate the state of the system has to validate every little thing that anyone has ever done. Instead, you, know, you can use fairly simple you know, cryptographic data structures like Merkle trees, which is just a bunch of hashes that are arranged in a, a, a tree shape so that you don't have to put all of that data into the blockchain, you can put one hash into the blockchain, and then you can cryptographically prove that any other hashes that are re directly related to your data are in fact uh, directly cryptographically linkable to the one hash that's in the blockchain. So you, know, you can do that with really any system. You can create a complete other blockchain and network system, and you can then have it on a regular basis put a cryptographic hash, which is essentially a fingerprint, not necessarily a checkpoint, but a, it, it is a way where someone can then take all of the other data related to that system and cryptographically verify that the system has had the state transitions that you expected it had and that you're not relying solely on the security properties of this other system, but you are also getting the additional security properties of the Bitcoin network because 
the Bitcoin network has those different hashes that are, are kind of like fingerprints or checkpoints between different uh, time stamps or uh, you know snapshots of this new system that you're anchoring into it. So you don't need to have a distributed network. You don't need to incentivize people to run many nodes and spend a lot of resources on establishing immutable proof of work to create a time chain. You just take Bitcoin's time chain, you pay a little Bitcoin in transaction fees to anchor your data into that chain, and then you point back to it. And we all know that rolling back the Bitcoin blockchain and changing that data is just not economically or physically possible. So your system inherits that trust, essentially. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking at a really high level here. There's many different ways you can implement any of these systems. But in, from my perspective, what it all comes down to is, um, do you provide the means whereby someone can take all of the data from your system and then you cryptographically verify based on these hashes that you put into Bitcoin that that everything lines up and that you know, no one has been screwing around with the history of what has happened in the new system. If I can go on a small aside, you mentioned that Ethereum layer twos deposit their data on chain, which requires Ethereum nodes to validate it. By that logic, are Ethereum layer twos actually scaling Ethereum if they're still adding to on-chain data? How do you think about that? Well, any layer two has what I would say is like the capability of scaling. So the zero knowledge rollups on Ethereum certainly have the capability of scaling because you can do more on the layer two and you don't have to put everything all of the activity on the layer two back onto layer one. It's similar to the way that Lightning Network works, where you anchor into layer one, and then you can do a lot of stuff on layer two without having to settle back to layer one. The, um, the scalability of these systems really comes down to how much activity are you doing on the layer two versus the layer one. I think of it almost as like a ratio of like you're creating one transaction on layer one. Well, then are you doing one transaction on layer two, 10 transactions, 100, 1,000, 10,000? Because that's kind of the um, magnifier effect of the scalability properties of that layer two. Right. I guess what I'm getting at is that the Ethereum roll-up solutions, they seem to require keeping all of the layer two data for validation. And so over time, it seems like the data requirements increase. And I mean, I see in their new roadmap, they're talking about how to safely throw away this data. It just seems, I don't know, very fragile. It's certainly not the way that Bitcoin would do it. Oh, you mean if you also want to validate uh, the layer two activities? Well, my understanding is that with ZK rollups, you create a proof and the proof can be validated very easily. But if you want to use the rollup to perform additional transactions, then you need the data that also produce the proof. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's also, I mean, that's somewhat analogous to Lightning, though it may not be quite as individualized, right? So, with, for example, when you're doing Lightning transactions, you still need to keep every uh, state change, like every HTLC for any of your channels where any payments are sent or received, like in order to be able to then make another transaction, you need to know what the previous channel state was. 
And you know, this has been something that the Lightning teams have also been continually optimizing. In fact, like with the recent LD release, I, I was hearing that some people who had uh, channel database sizes that were like 30 gigabytes have seen them shrink down to, I think, a few hundred megabytes as a result of some of the optimizations with how much of that off-chain data needs to be stored. But um, you know, the cool thing about, I think, any of these second layer solutions is that they tend to be a lot easier for you to improve because you don't have to get consensus from an entire network in order to make changes. Right. That's a good point. Now, one thing we discussed before we started recording was Bitcoin cycles. And we're currently in a cycle that seems to be trending downwards. And my listeners and my co-hosts are really enjoying this. We have the popcorn out. We're enjoying all of the highly speculative projects and platforms that misrepresented their fundamentals. They seem to be exploding. And this is always a moment of uh, intensely satisfying schadenfreude for those of us who didn't participate in the hype cycle. Obviously, everyone who did is in distress, and that's too bad. But this happens time and time again. Now, one thing I'm interested is your perspective, having lived through so many cycles, on what gets thrown out every cycle and what technologies or ideas remain and grow, and your thoughts on that. The technologies that don't make it tend to be the ones that have weak fundamentals. Uh, perhaps they have weak security properties and they get uh, completely demolished. Or you know, in the case of some of the things that we've been saying with like various uh, algorithmic stable coins blowing up, um, these are the systems that they may work well in theory in the, the happy cases where the various variables that are inputs in the, into the system remain within tolerable ranges. But when there's high volatility or when, when actors come in and they really push the envelope, if the system gets pushed past the breaking point, then the real question becomes, is that enough to cause a loss of confidence in the system and cause people to stop uh, working on it and investing resources in it? Uh, or is it something where people look at it and say, oh, this is a learning experience. We can fix this, improve upon it, and uh, soldier on. Any of these crypto protocols, networks, whatever, I believe they're, they're very hard to kill. You really have to crush people's optimism and belief that the system is going to be able to work in the long term. Because if you want to kill one of these systems, you basically have to cause everyone who is interested in it to become apathetic. That's how the system dies. Um, and this is what I've said to a lot of people when they say, you know, what is, what is Bitcoin's greatest threat or greatest weakness? And I, I, I usually say it's apathy because it's, it's once all of the Bitcoin proponents become apathetic and stop uh, trying to work on it and improve it, that is when uh, the system will stop improving. And, and when it comes to software and networks, if you're not improving, you're degrading. And so eventually everything is going to fall apart. So there are systems 
plenty of systems that will get crushed but bounce back from this cycle, just like any cycle, if they have a sufficiently motivated group of people behind them. But the systems that aren't going to make it are going to be the ones that have failed so spectacularly that nobody thinks it's worth their time or money to continue trying to work on them. So there's, you know, there's some of that in every cycle. And, you know, of course, it, it comes down to, I think, fundamentals. And every system is different. So we're kind of talking very uh, generally and hand wavy here. Yeah. I mean, one thing I was thinking about just because I've lived through these cycles is how in 2017, there was this ICO boom. Most of them were using this lazy ERC-20 standard on Ethereum. And then this cycle, it's pretty clear that ICOs on Ethereum never work out. So we didn't see too many of these ERC-20 coins, though we did see a few come up this cycle. But the new hotness was DeFi and NFTs, which was funny because NFTs, of course, had been a thing that had been discarded from Bitcoin in an early Bitcoin cycle with the crypto punks and things like that. So I was sort of getting at that idea of how every cycle there's kind of a new hot idea. Then later, maybe it shows up again and Maybe you see some potential in these currently overhyped ideas. Yeah, I mean, that's because this is not all about technology. Really, like I said early on, uh, you know, being able to evaluate the technology does not mean you'll be able to evaluate the investment potential. And so there were, I guess, like the um, master coin and Omni uh, protocol on Bitcoin like eight years ago, maybe six or eight years ago where uh, there were like rare Pepe's Bitcoin NFTs that were using the opportune functionality on Bitcoin. And, you know, I found that amusing at the time. I never got into it. I, I suspect there were probably only a few thousand people uh, who were even interested in Bitcoin NFTs. And then we saw, I guess you could probably say that like CryptoKitties was probably the next big NFT kind of incarnation, though it had some other aspects to it that kind of gamified it in 2017 and that became such a huge thing that it actually like bogged down the whole ethereum network uh, on a number of occasions and then the marketing and narratives on nfts continued to get honed and, and refined and we saw another kind of evolution of nfts this past cycle and now you know it's on the downtrend and we're going to see you know which of these projects is going to be able to last i'm sure at least a handful of them will last and considered to be kind of of like OG NFT, good, valuable art projects. But there's, as usual, there's going to be this long tail of projects that were just, you know, riding on the coattails of the wave that are going to lose so much interest that uh, they're not going to be able to retain any value and they're going to die because nobody is going to spend any of their resources even playing around with them anymore. Which brings us back to your idea that what really kills Bitcoin is apathy or what really kills these technologies is people no longer interested in them. And I think that kind of gets to the complexity of what we're dealing with because these are social technologies. The code on the blockchain, which is running on nodes, is a software approximation of the social consensus of the network. I think that's something you said before. 
for. What are these protocols doing? They are creating machine consensus, which, well, it's meant to reflect the meat space consensus of, of whatever it is that any given system is supposed to do. So we get into interesting situations where we find conflicts between the machine consensus and the meat space consensus. And then also when there is no longer any you know meat space consensus of interest in continuing the machine consensus, that is you know when the network dies. Now, you've talked a lot about potential new technologies. Can you share any technologies or applications on a blockchain that you think have promise today or you see future development in? Well, the the sort of self-empowering functionality that these cryptographic protocols give to us are the ability for us to manipulate a database with very special properties. And we can manipulate that database solely off of signing your transactions aka state transition functions with these private keys you know that gives us all kinds of of interesting attributes which people will refer to as like permissionlessness and immutability of, of the data and so on and so forth. To date, that has mostly been used to just sort of update records of ownership of crypto assets on these different blockchains. So I think what's interesting at a very high level from what we can do with these protocols is you know we're essentially creating a new economy that is devoid of gatekeepers. You know, a lot of the the pessimists or the haters out there you'll find are constantly talking about how you know crypto is basically going through the entire history of human finance but at a like 100x or 1000x rate so you know it's it's relearning a lot of the mistakes that happened over uh, the course of human history and i think that's apt but that doesn't make me pessimistic. I think it just means that we're getting to the point where we're going to surpass what the the traditional financial system can do. And we already have in a number of ways, but not in every way. And one of the missing pieces from all of that, I think, is the idea of, of reputation um, you know, reputation plays a very key role in a lot of, of aspects of finance, and we haven't really been able to do that in the crypto ecosystem because you know, if you're if you're staying purely within the cryptographic protocols, then there is no concept of identity, government identity, and the, and the reputation and sort of like credit scores and various risk factoring that happens in traditional finance. I think that you know one of the root missing pieces to being able to continue to surpass what you can do in traditional finance is to have this concept of identity within these new systems. And of course, this is going to be a very different type of identity. It's not going to be a government-assigned identity. It's going to be a self-attested identity, perhaps a sort of web of attestation identity where you're initializing your own identity or even multiple identities and over time your interactions with other people and other identities in the space will then add or remove reputation from your own identities that you've created and then you can point to those and cryptographically 
prove that uh, you are you know, somewhat trustworthy when you're seeking out other types of financial opportunities. This is really interesting because on the one hand, the lack of identity in digital asset markets means that a lot of decentralized protocols like MakerDAO require over-collateralization of lending. And this means that I don't really care who you are. I'll lend to you if you over-collateralize the loan because I don't need to trust you. I'll just take your collateral if things don't work out. Obviously, this is capital inefficient. And so this almost gives rise to the algorithmic stablecoins, which promise this magical blend of capital efficiency and somehow it magically always you know, maintains a dollar or something like that. But I think there's another side to this, which is some criticism of Bitcoin and things that are happening in the crypto space include an idea of the lack of privacy, the blockchain panopticon or being a, a peasant on the blockchain. I heard these terms all thrown around. And I wonder how digital identity becomes something that improves human freedom and potentially privacy without sort of centralizing identity and being used as a tool to surveil and control people's interactions on these open systems. Well, yeah, I mean, as usual, I think we're going to see a whole spectrum of different implementations and cryptography at a fundamental level is a double-edged sword. I would say if you look across the ecosystem, the vast majority of usage of cryptography and these protocols is using the attestation aspects where you know you're you're creating digital signatures, you're using public private key cryptography to prove ownership and prove transfer of ownership of things in the system. The flip side of cryptography is of course using it to actually encrypt data, using it uh, for privacy purposes. And you know there's only a handful of protocols uh, or functionality within these systems that is is using that side of things. And so you know that's why there is a huge potential for the Panopticon, as you'd say, uh, because a lot of these systems are quite surveillable. And you know, in an optimal scenario, the default for using any of these systems would not be broadcasting all of your data to the entire world. Unfortunately, there's some trade-offs there. And I think that's like one of the reasons that Bitcoin base layer protocol has not implemented stronger default privacy. One of the trade-offs is that it tends to require a lot more data, and so it's less data efficient. That's That creates issues around scalability. The other is that it can make it difficult to fully audit the monetary supply, which is like one, you know, one of the most sacred properties within Bitcoin. And so that's why I think we see more potential of privacy improvements having, you know, coming in at layer two solutions. Also because, you know, you don't need uh, consensus, as we said, to, to make improvements on second layers. Now, if you don't mind, I'd really appreciate your opinion on some second layers that exist. I mean, if you're willing to share it. In particular, one second layer that I found interesting has been the liquid sidechain, the implementation of confidential transactions, the ability to create additional tertiary assets on liquid seemed interesting. It seemed to me like something that might absorb, I don't know, brokerage accounts or something in the future. Of course, liquid has some security trade-offs. It's a federation, and so a federation is custodying the Bitcoin on layer one, and then users of liquid have to trust that the federation will allow 
allow them to peg out of liquid Bitcoin back into Bitcoin. Have you looked at this system and do you have thoughts on its efficacy, its trust, its security? Yeah, I mean, it is a federation similar to RSK. I guess kind of stepping back one level, like just talking about side chains in general, we still don't have what I would say is like the holy grail of side chains, which is the trustless two-way peg, which is something that was, I think, briefly mentioned in Blockstream's sidechain paper back in like 2014 or something. And so uh, unfortunately, like your default sidechain is a federation, which is basically a multi-sig pegging mechanism for converting Bitcoin into whatever that sidechain's Bitcoin peg token is. And so as a result, you know, that's never going to have quite the same security model or, or you know, trust minimization. But if people are willing to accept that security model, then of course you can take advantage of much more functionality, scalability, so on and so forth um, on these other systems. So why hasn't it taken off? That's some interesting speculation, I guess. You know, maybe it comes down to narratives and marketing. It's hard for me to say, you know, what the average person even thinks about these systems. You and I may find confidential assets and confidential transactions uh, interesting. Especially if we're talking about privacy, it seems to me that the vast majority of people just don't value privacy at all. And and so while we find these systems to be valuable, they don't get a lot of adoption because it's just not a big selling point. Uh, you know, this kind of comes back full circle to the whole issue of you know scamminess and, and hype and stuff in the space is that it seems to me that the mainstream person uh, is going to be far more enticed by marketing and narratives that are essentially get-rich-quick schemes uh, as opposed to secure yourself and keep yourself private from various attackers that they never even think about type of schemes. Has the average person changed in your 10 years in Bitcoin? Or has every cycle of Bitcoin hype and then dump resulted in the same sort of get-rich-quick schemes dominating the space during the bull market and then deflating during the bear market? Do you see, to use a startup term, consumer training? Are people changing with every cycle or is it the same old, same old? Yeah, people are changing in the sense that every cycle, these technologies become easier to use. And I mean, that is really what my focus has been on for the entire time I've worked in this space, though I've only really focused on uh, self-custody and private key management. But across the board, all of these technologies continue to get easier to use. The user interfaces uh, have lower and lower bars that you have to jump over from like a technical sophistication standpoint. And so the result is that you know, the level of sophistication of entrance into the system with each cycle trends lower and lower and lower, uh, which means that you know they care less about the ideals, the fundamental values and whatnot, and they probably care more about being able to click on something and feel like they're going to make a lot of money off of it. Sorry, I jumped ahead. To return to the holy grail of sidechains for a moment, the idea of a trustless two-way peg, the ability to move Bitcoin trustlessly into the sidechain and then to move the sidechain asset trustlessly back into Bitcoin. These would be transactions at a protocol layer. There would be no exchange or intermediary. It would just be a permissionless transaction both ways. 
The only implementation of this that I'm familiar of is Paul Storks's drive chain concept. Have you looked at this proposal? Do you have thoughts about it? And are you aware of other proposals for a trustless two-way peg construction in Bitcoin? Oh, absolutely. Uh, because I think he's been writing about that probably since 2015 or 2016. Uh and I think a lot of people would push back on saying that it's trustless. I think one of the major criticisms of drive chains, if I recall correctly, is that what it really does is um, it it puts a lot of the game theory onto the miners to to cooperate and and you know act somewhat honestly with regard to the the drive chain pegging mechanism. Um, However, you know, at this point, I think it's, it's something that's worth trying. And, and it seems to me like Paul's not giving up on it and that there are other people that are interested in it. And I, I know that they have had some uh, testnet drive chains up and running for a few years. But once again, there's kind of the question of apathy and adoption and whatnot. So no one can stop anyone from trying to get some drive chains out there in a production setting. And I'm, I'm certainly interested uh, to see the continued evolution of it. Great. I actually have one more question about a project that you're involved with, the Bitcoin Certified Professional. I'd never heard of that before. I'm an advisor on the the C4 cryptocurrency certification consortium, though I've been focused more on their new auditor exam. The whole idea there is that uh, C4 has been around for quite a few years, and it's really meant to be a set of best practices and standards uh, generally for enterprises, custodians to say, you know, these are the different ways that you should be managing your private keys. It's all been good and well, but there's never really been any attestation uh, around that. And so what we've done now is we've created a path for people to be certified as auditors for those standards and then essentially be able for enterprises to pay to be audited. And you know then we'll be able to finally have some level of attestation that different custodians are actually following best practices. And there's like three different tiers of best practices that you can get audited for. Uh, and of course, the higher tiers are much more onerous, but much more sound against a variety of different attacks. The uh, certified Bitcoin professional thing has been around since the inception of C4. And I think I originally took the exam in like 2016 or so. And I would say anyone who's interested in the space should do it. It's pretty easy. I think it's only about 100 questions. If you've been studying Bitcoin for a few years, uh, you shouldn't even really have to, to do much preparation for it. It's just a, an interesting little tidbit certification that someone can, can claim to have. Yeah, I mean, the cryptocurrency security standard auditor exam actually seems pretty interesting because one thing that my co-host and I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Chris, he's the creator of Jupiter Broadcasting, which is a network of Linux podcasts. But one thing we've talked about is how the overlap between the Linux community and the Bitcoin community is much smaller than we feel like it should be. And so we're interested in ways to sort of merge these two groups. And this auditor certification, it almost seems like something that you'd get if you were a sysadmin type professional and you wanted to sort of pivot towards cryptocurrency or, or Bitcoin or something like that. Can you comment on that thought? 
There's certainly network effects issues here where right now there's only a handful of people who've gone through the auditor exam and are thus you know, certified to even be auditors. And you know, once we have a decent pool of auditors set up, then it's just a question of building more demand around custodians getting audited. The pessimistic side of me says that that's going to be really hard to do because, for example, custodians have always been able to show proof of reserves if they really wanted to. That was even a feature that BitGo offered uh, for a number of years while I was there. And there, eventually there was such low demand for it. I think only one or two exchanges ever even actually did it that it just kind of fell off by the wayside. So it's a tricky question of like, how do we how do we kind of create a new narrative within the ecosystem that you should probably stay away from exchanges that don't prove that they follow best practices? That's an interesting case. I recall listening to an interview, I think it was CoinFloor in the UK that implemented proof of reserves and they did a very interesting setup where you could demonstrate that your particular account with them was always funded, but it revealed no information about other people's accounts. So it was very clever. And like you said, I'm not familiar with any major U.S. exchanges that have bothered doing that. Actually, Kraken, Kraken, I think, implemented it late last year. And I know I went in and I I basically ran the attestation from my own account, made sure it worked. But uh, if I recall correctly, it basically required running some stuff on the command line. So, you know, 99.5% of people would probably immediately be... Uh, kind of technically pushed out from being able to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. It has to be very easy for it to gain adoption. I wonder if interest in attestation increases after a cycle where things fail. One interesting aspect of this cycle is that the rise of these DeFi lending protocols seems to increase contagion in cryptocurrency ecosystems. And I, I wonder if exchanges will get caught up in that simply because they offer yield products now, which ties in with all of these open lending protocols. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, any of the yield generation platforms, they're rehypothecating assets. And so they're, from a technical standpoint, they can't prove reserves because they're giving the funds away to, to third parties. Proof of rehypothecation. That, uh, that could be a new standard. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, very few people bother to look under the hood on anything, and they, they kind of just take whatever is presented to them on the screen at face value, which is why we're going to continue to see these cycles of people getting burned by poorly thought out, poorly architected uh, solutions. Now, that's actually an, a great quote to end an, uh, an interview with. It's so dark and uh, <laughs> it's, uh, kind of... Um fatalistic. Would you like to speculate on the positives you see in the future relating to Bitcoin and these cryptographic technologies that have the potential to empower individuals? The optimistic side is that you know, no one is forcing you to use these custodians. You know, If you're at least uh, interested and sophisticated enough to look under the hood and, and understand the power dynamics of which of these systems empower you and which of them 
disempower you. And one of the interesting things about like all the stuff that's been going on the past few weeks with all the, these different protocols and lenders part, you know, the, the meme Bitcoin user unaffected, though, you know, it's a little bit more uh, complicated than that. Really, it's it's Bitcoin self-custody user unaffected. So, you know, those of us who are holding our own keys, while the critics would say, oh, we're losing our money because the exchange rate is going down. If your unit of account is Bitcoin, uh, you're not losing anything. Uh, we're just kind of standing by the wayside watching all of these other things burn down. And meanwhile, we're presented with an opportunity to perhaps uh, pick up the pieces of some of these gamblers uh, who have lost everything and have been forced to sell at uh, discount prices. I completely agree. Bitcoin moves from weak hands to strong hands. And I think that the killer technology that will be identified in this cycle is self-custody because there's a lot happening in the wider traditional financial system that really emphasizes how the lack of self-custody, the lack of the ability to withdraw assets to your own custody enables poor behavior by custodians and large institutions that really don't affect individual users of these systems particularly well. And that's why everyone should go to keys.casa to learn how self-custody is made easy. That's a great finish. Actually, was looking at the CASA website because we have a mix of listeners from beginners to intermediate and advanced. And we've done some episodes on starting self-custody. And CASA has a guideline to sort of determine how much security you need, you know, multi-sig versus single sig, depending on how much Bitcoin you're holding. Did, were you involved in creating those thresholds or do you have thoughts about at what point it's a good idea to move from, say, single SIG on a computer to a hardware wallet to a multi-SIG with a hardware wallet? Absolutely. I mean, pretty much all of the best practices and advice uh, that is on our website and our documentation has either been written or at least reviewed by me based upon things that I wrote many, many years ago. But I've always put it into like three different tiers. You know, you should have your pocket money, your spending money. That's fine to be in a hot wallet. Uh, you shouldn't have more money in a hot wallet than you would carry around in a traditional physical wallet because you might get mugged. Then there's your checking account. This might have a, a non-trivial amount of money in it where it would hurt a bit if that got lost. This is really an amount of money you should not have on an internet connected device. Uh, so, you know, perhaps buy yourself a, a hardware device so that it's in quote unquote cold storage. However, this is probably still going to have some single points of failure where you could lose it. You're probably a lot less likely to get hacked and have it stolen from you. But there's probably some fragility where, you know, certain edge cases or disasters could cause you to lose your key material. And then uh, finally, there's the like life savings, like, you have a substantial portion, a non-trivial portion of your net worth in Bitcoin. That's when you need to go to the extreme and, and make sure that you don't have any single points of failure. That's when it, it makes sense to start using multi-signature wallets and basically distributing the keys around geographically uh, on different hardware and software so that you give yourself the ability to experience a failure without that becoming a catastrophic failure. And you know, that's what our various multi-sig products provide. Kind of the final tier, which it's not necessarily a different tier, but the final thing to worry about then is inheritance 
and that is just mainly tricky because it requires you to to walk a very fine line between making sure that nobody can access your Bitcoin versus making sure that somebody can access your Bitcoin if you get hit by a truck. Right. That is tricky. Suddenly all your children collude against you and drain your cold storage. Sort of the worst case, I guess. Yeah, and we've thought about this extensively. We've spent years working with clients on it, and we have you know, several different inheritance solutions available as well. Well, thank you so much for a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. Is there anywhere you'd like to hand off our listeners to learn more about you or projects you're interested in? Well, pretty much everything that I have done or am doing is available through lop.net, though an alternative domain, which may be easier for you to remember, is bitcoin.page and that one goes directly to my educational resources which is great to hand out to any of your friends and family who want to start diving down the rabbit hole yes i actually do that and i found so many useful things on your bitcoin.page resource list so i can personally attest to its quality And that's it for my interview with Jameson Lop. I hope you enjoyed it. And please remember to reach out at BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or on Twitter at BitcoinDadPod. Or you can always send a boost with a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain.fm, Podverse, or Castomatic. Thanks and hope you come back. <laughs>